Instead, my name is Justin Dillaplane. I was born and raised in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So if there's any uh, Giants or Yankees fans in here, I hope you won't hold that against me. Uh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. My wife, Caitlin, and I, we met in college uh, down at Pensacola Christian College. Um, we've been married for three years now, spent the first two years of our marriage, two years or so in Canada, living with, living with and near her family. And then just over the last year, God's called us um, back into a ministry position. Uh, this is where he's had us serving since last October. Um, when, when Pastor Russ, he told me I was going to be preaching today, my, my mind started racing. There was so many passages that I was like, okay, you know, I could go here, I could go to this, I could go to this passage. Obviously, I needed to seek God's leading, and I did that. And as I did that, there was something that Russ said that kept coming back into my mind. It's that I want the people to see your heart. He said, I want the people to see your heart, Justin. Well, that changed how I prayed a bit because instead of now of just praying about a passage that uh, I was going to be preaching on, I was praying about what my heart was, what, what I believe the core of my ministry should be, what God wants a ministry to look like. And what I found was that over the last few months in particular is that God has given me a real burden to continually preach about what I believe to be the core of all of Scripture, and that's the gospel. You may say, well, you know, that, that's a simple topic. You know, why not preach on, you know, church discipline or church something or else or other when you're coming here? It's a simple topic. You know, we, many of you, I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure, I haven't met many of you yet, but I know that many people who are coming to church have been coming to church their entire lives. They've been around the Bible their entire lives, and so they've been hearing the gospel since they were children. It's simple. I think that may be, though, one of the church's greatest problems is that we have made the gospel too simple. We have churches full of people who know the gospel, who have been hearing the gospel since childhood, and now that they're adults, they've lost the wonder of what the gospel actually is. So let's talk about it today. Rather than pushing the gospel off to the side and just making it, you know, this is generally what we do, but it's not always center, let's talk about it today. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little background here. Paul, he's just finished teaching the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. He's just finished writing about that for three chapters. He's covered what those gifts are, what they're meant for, how they're to be used. And immediately after that section of Scripture, we come to 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Take a moment for prayer. God, as we come to you again in prayer, Lord, we're thinking about the gospel today. We're looking at this great truth that's really at the core of everything that your word is about. It's at the core of everything that we should be doing as a church. Lord, I pray that you would help us today as we're looking at your word, that we would, we would take that today and that we'd, we'd use it, we'd allow it to affect our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. 
That word moreover at the beginning of this passage, moreover brethren, it signifies a change in direction. Paul, throughout this passage, he's been preaching through one topic for a few chapters, one that I think many Christians may find more fasting, maybe more riveting, more worthy of spending sermon time on than the topic that I introduced to you. But now he says it's time to change direction. It's time to move on from talking about spiritual gifts and talk about something else. I'm not trying to diminish spiritual gifts. After all, all Scripture is profitable. It can and it should be applied to our lives. All Scripture should be. But Paul is clear here that there's something that should be preeminent in our lives. There's something that is more important than your spiritual gifting. By saying, moreover, he's trying to get our attention. He's saying, what we're about to talk about is important. And what is that thing? Look again at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you. Spiritual gifts are fine and good, and Paul, he cared about them enough to spend three chapters talking about them, but now he says, I want to talk to you about the gospel. This is a driving force of Paul's message. Everywhere he went, every city, village, synagogue, town square, he preached the gospel. He'd already preached the gospel here in Corinth, where he's, the church that he's writing to. They'd heard it. They knew it. And Paul here, in a letter to a Christian church, felt that it was time to go through it again. So what is the gospel? We'll, we'll skip verses 1 and 2 for now. We'll move into verses 3 and 4. We'll come back to verses 1 and 2 in a moment. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If you take notes, this is a good spot for point one. Point one, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, if I were to ask, come to you each individually and ask you, what would you say the gospel is? I'd probably get quite a few answers, but I think all of them would probably center around this, around the same idea. The gospel, it's good news. It's how we're saved. For the sake of our study today, let's, let's dig a little deeper into what Paul says. Paul first says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That the only begotten Son of the God of the universe, the perfect spotless Lamb, came to this earth to die. Paul says about Christ in Philippians 2 that he was God in heaven, that he enjoyed all the praise, all the honor, all the glory of being the creator and the Lord of the universe. But then he continues in Philippians 2, Paul does, to say this about Jesus. That he did the most humble thing that anyone could ever do. He left behind everything that he had. He left behind his home in heaven. He left behind all his honor, all his praise, all his glory. To come to this earth and become a man. He left behind heaven and worship to become a man. And after doing something so humbling that I, don't, I know I personally wouldn't be able to do that. If I was God, I don't know if I would be able, I would be willing to give up all that praise. That, that's that pride you were talking about earlier, us. I don't know that in my heart I would have the humility to come down and give up being God to become a man. But after Jesus did that, he humbled himself further, not only by becoming a man, but being willing to die in the most despicable way possible, a criminal's cross. He was betrayed by a friend, falsely accused, condemned instead of a murderer. He was beaten beyond recognition, nailed by his wrists and his feet 
to a cross made of wood and then suspended in the sky between two thieves who deserve to die. Here's the kicker. He chose that. He chose that. This is his plan from the beginning of time. This is the plan. His death was according to the scriptures. Genesis 3, God had promised Eve that the woman's seed would be bruised by the serpent. Psalm 22 excruciatingly details these events. And in Isaiah 53, the Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and that he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And while there are other passages we could turn to, and while he, he knew this was coming, he still chose to be that sacrifice for us. Paul continues in verse 4 of this passage to say that Christ was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was buried in the grave. And if the story ends there, if that's all we have is that Jesus died for our sins, yes, we're forgiven, but that's all that we have. Paul says later in this passage that we're of all men most miserable. We're most miserable. Well, but praise God that Jesus did not stay dead. Praise God. He had a plan in place to not only pay the price for our sins, but to give us new life. Once again, from the beginning of time, this was God's plan. When God promised Eve in Genesis 3 that her seed would be bruised by the serpent, he also promised that her seed would then crush the head of that serpent. The story of Jonah, it foreshadowed that Christ would be in the grave for three days and then rise again. Jesus himself even told how the whole story of the Old Testament pointed to this moment that he would die before being raised again to enter into his glory. All of this was God's plan. All of this was foretold. All of this was designed. But why? Why would God use this plan? Out of all the plans that God could have possibly chosen, why did he choose this one? Let me say this. It was all because of love. It was all because of his love. John 3, 16, maybe the most well-known verse in all of Scripture says that God so loved the people of this world. I was reading a book a few weeks ago, and it said this. The little, world so, little word so is worth noticing. It communicates the intensity of God, God's love. How did God love the world? Not moderately, but massively. God so loved the world, not because we are lovable, but because he is love. The reality is, without the gospel, we're lost, we're empty, we have no hope, but because of the gospel, we are found, we are filled, we have hope. Which leads me into point two here. Point one was, what is the gospel? Point number two, what are the implications of the gospel? Based on everything we just read in the text, based on everything we just talked through, the gospel has significant implications, significant applications for our lives. So it's time for us to go back to the part of the passage that we skipped over. Look back at verse one of this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verse one. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. There's a few phrases I want you to see in there. Which also ye have received, wherein ye stand, and by which also ye are saved. I'm going to change the grammar a little bit so it's a little easier to remember, but each of these phrases describing the gospel should impact how we live. Start off with what you received. 
Verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received. This phrase implies that the people that Paul is preaching to, the people that he is talking to here, have received the gospel. And this isn't just hearing the gospel, receiving it in their ears. No, the word for received there means that they have taken ownership. The people of Corinth, they weren't just passive listeners to the message of the gospel. They had received it in their hearts. They had taken ownership of it. When Paul preached the gospel in Corinth, they believed it. They recognized, hey, we're sinners. You know, we're messed up. You know, Pastor Russ has been preaching through 2 Corinthians, and if you've read through any, any of the books of the, that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, um, you know that saying the people of the Corinthian church was messed up is like saying the Dead Sea is salty or that the sun is hot. It's stating the obvious there. It's very much stating the obvious. But the same people that Paul is correcting throughout, all these, throughout both of these letters, the same people he wants to get their lives right are the same people of whom he says, you've received this. Let me explain by asking a question. Before you got saved, who were you? Who were you? I know there may be some in here who, like myself, were children when we accepted Christ. You know, we hadn't lived enough life yet to make the same mistakes that someone who was saved in their 20s, 30s, or even later on had made. But whatever stage of life you're in when you first hear the gospel, whether you're a 3-year-old, a 12-year-old, a teenager, whether in your 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe in your 60s, 70s, or 80s, whatever stage of life you were in when you first heard the gospel, the fact remains you were then and are now a sinner. Every person has inherited a sin nature. Every person in that sin nature actively chooses to sin against God. And despite that, Jesus Christ came to die. Romans 5, 8 says, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Paul was living his life as a Pharisee, God loved him. While Peter was actively denying Jesus, Christ died for him. Before you and I even had a chance to sin, Christ died for us. There's no merit of our own that we can hope to claim this forgiveness. Romans 3, verse 10 to 12 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And since there is nothing that we can do to claim this forgiveness, since there is nothing that we physically can do to actually claim it, there is nothing we physically need to do to claim this forgiveness. Every person in this room, every person watching live or watching later, every single person in this world can come to Jesus Christ just as you are. Come to Christ broken, needing to be mended and wounded to be healed. Come desperate to be rescued, wounded to be healed. Empty to be filled, guilty to be pardoned. And when we come this way, not on our merits, but recognize that only Christ's perfect sacrifice can forgive us. We are welcomed by Christ as the song is titled, Just As I Am. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've thought. It doesn't matter what you feel. Christ, he says the same words to you that he said to a religious man named Nicodemus, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, 
Christ says the same words to you that he said to an outcast woman from Samaria. That whosoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst. Christ says the same words to you that he said to the Pharisees. That whosoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Christ says the same words to you that he said on the cross. It is finished. The payment for your sins, it has been made. Just receive him as you are and you'll be saved. I invite you, if you have not done this yet today, I invite you, I beg you, please accept this great gospel. I said earlier that sometimes we make the gospel too simple, but the reality is accepting it is indeed simple. It is simple. What comes after isn't so simple, but admitting that you're a sinner, believing that Christ died, was buried, and rose again, and then calling on him to save you is as simple a message as it comes. Quite simply pray in the quiet of your seat. If you're watching later or or live online, if you're watching in the quiet of your living room, dining room, college dorm room, wherever you may be watching or listening to this, this is the most important decision that you will ever make. The gospel that you have received. There's a second implication, though. The gospel is not only what you received, but also where you stand. Look again at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. The word stand there, it implies that we are standing firm, that we have chosen a position, that we have chosen a spot in the world that we're going to stand on, and we're not giving it up that we've chosen to stand in the gospel, to not be moved from the truths that we've heard, but to instead stand on God's word, stand on that gospel, and that should impact how we live. Because the gospel is not just, as Paul writes in Romans 1, the power of God unto salvation. It is also, as verse 17 of Romans 1 says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel, it isn't just a magic salvation potion. It isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. God isn't some genie in a bottle who grants us our wish of forgiveness and leaves us alone. No, accepting the gospel of grace through faith then implies that we should be living by faith. We should live by faith. The gospel is the most important part of what we do. It should impact everything that we do. Before we got saved, we were the worst of sinners, even those of us who are three, four, five, six years old when we were saved, the message of the gospel now says, go and sin no more. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be sinless, but it does mean that we should be sinning less. Before we got saved, we were the enemies of God through the gospel. He is now our friend. Before we got saved, we lived bickering and fighting with those around us. The message of the gospel unifies the church. Ephesians 4 says he unifies us as one body, with one spirit, one hope of their calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The message of the gospel should change our actions, our appetites, and our attitudes. The message of the gospel should change how we treat our families, our friends, our foes. It should change how we work, study, play, eat, drink, whatever you do, do it for God's glory. After all, Paul says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The truth is, when you accept Christ as your Savior, when you accept his gospel, you're associating with him in his death. He died, and his righteousness is now given to you. And accepting your, his gospel, you're saying, he died from my sins so that I could live apart from them. This is the picture of baptism. Over the course of my life, I, like I said, I grew up in church. I grew up in a Christian home, so I've, I've seen maybe hundreds of baptisms throughout the course of my life. And in every single one of them, that person went under the water. And going under, what they're saying is, I believe that Christ died for my sins and was buried, and I am now dead to those sins. When they come out of the water, they're saying, I have been raised to walk in a new life with Christ. At the moment of salvation, not not the moment of baptism, but at the moment of salvation, baptism is just a picture of that. At that moment of salvation, that person is no longer the person that they once were. At the moment of my salvation, I was five years old. I was sitting at my kitchen table. I was eating breakfast. I said, you know, I know, I knew the gospel. And I said, you know what? I need to accept this. In that moment, when I accepted that gospel, I was no longer the boy that I was once before. In the moment of your salvation, you are no longer the man or woman, boy or girl who you once were. You are now dead to your sins and raised to walk in a new life with Christ. The gospel means that everything we think we say that we do whatever we're doing, whatever we're, any of that should be different. It should create in us a desire for new things, for new relationships. It should create a culture in the church that's not like a social club, but is changed in, by the gospel. It's loving through the gospel. It's unifying around the gospel. Every aspect of our life should be different. It's not because of who we are. It's not because of what we do. It's because of who Christ is. Because of what he did for us. Which leads to a third implication of the gospel. The gospel is what you received. It's where you stand. And finally, it's how you are saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 into verse 2 now. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. Notice how this is the final application of the gospel that Paul gives. His final one. Typically, when we give the gospel, this is the first application we think of. It's the first application we see. And there's nothing wrong with that. And before, because before we accept the gospel, before we actually accept the gospel, we have to accept the fact that we need saving. That's a necessity. But I believe here that Paul, he deliberately made this his last application. Look again at the order. First, there's receiving the gospel. Paul says in verse 2, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, or more literally, if you have taken possession, if you've owned what I preach unto you, we own it as truth. We repent of our sins. In that moment, when we do that, we are saved from the power of sin. No, No longer does sin have to have power over us. This then leads to us standing in the gospel to live our life, allowing it to affect everything that we do, And finally, then, we are also saved by the power of the gospel. When we die physically, we no longer face the penalty of the sins that we committed. The price is paid. Christ died to pay the penalty for every sin that we have ever committed. He took on our sin and was separated from God. He took on the judgment that we deserved 
And unless we, as Paul says in verse 2, have believed in vain, unless we didn't actually believe the gospel that we received, we have the assurance that our penalty is paid. We're saved from all the judgment of sin that awaits all those who reject God. We're saved for all of eternity. Today we've talked through what I believe is one of the most vital passages in Scripture for our faith. I believe this passage defines the very core of all of Scripture, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, it's going to permeate all of Scripture. Every book, every passage, every verse of the Old Testament in some way will point forward to the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. Every passage, book, verse in the New Testament reflects in some way back on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Every scripture you read, every principle you hold dear, even the assurance of a future home in heaven comes back to the gospel. And we should be comforted by this. The gospel, its saving work was finished on the cross. It was finished in the garden tomb. But we should also be motivated by this. The fact that Christ finished this work should motivate us now to live for him and to share that gospel. I said earlier that those who have not accepted this gospel should receive it as soon as they can. I I, I would love if there's anyone here who hasn't accepted the gospel, you can come talk to me. I'd love to be able to talk to you. I know Pastor Russ would love to talk to you as well. There's someone who's watching later. Again, I would love for you guys to be able to accept that gospel. But for those here, for those watching who have already accepted this gospel, we should now be taking that gospel to those around us so that they can understand what Christ has done, so that they can receive it, so that they can stand it and ultimately be saved by it. Each of us, in every day that we have on earth, live in the light of this gospel, thankful that we have had the opportunity to receive it, Motivated to stand it and praising God that we are saved by it. Now, as we close, I want to do something a little different than some pastors may do. I want you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 17. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed. I'd like to pray this with you. If you would all stand as we close with this prayer of Jesus. I'll turn it back over to you. All right, well, let's go ahead. I'm going to read. We're in John chapter 17. And uh, Jesus Christ is, we're going to begin in verse number 12. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept in my name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. But the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That son of perdition, of course, Judas. Christ states that uh, I kept all of those he gave, except for the one that was intended to be lost, Judas, the traitor. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the word, world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them my, thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world.